September 25th, 2018, Buenos Aires. The streets are quiet in anticipation for another day of resistance. After months of vigilant protesting, the biggest labor unions have called for a 24-hour national strike. Just two weeks ago, the streets that are now eerily empty were flooded by thousands of people protesting the new austerity measures introduced by President Macri's bailout deal with the International Monetary Fund in June. After years of steady inflation and the decline in quality of life, the people of Argentina have had enough. This year has brought almost 50% inflation, and the peso has lost half its value to the dollar, all the while no one has seen wage increases since last year. Wasn't the IMF the problem in the first place? From ranking one of the 10 wealthiest countries in the world in the late 19th century to receiving the biggest bailout package in the history of the IMF, one can't help but wonder, what went wrong? Hey, I'm Clara Eriksson, multimedia and history lover, and I'm your host. I'm a Swedish third year student at Minerva Schools at KGI, and I've been living in international communities since I was 17. Together, we'll be collecting histories from around the world through conversations with some wonderful and thoughtful humans I've met along the way. Buenas, hola a todos. This is Sofia, born and bred in the eighth largest country, area-wise, in the world, and one Spanish speaker of many in the country with the most Hispanics in the world, Argentina. I was originally born in a province in the north of Argentina, which is called Corrientes. But then my mom moved when I was like one month old uh, to a city that is called Rosario, which is 300 kilometers up from Buenos Aires. Sofia's story of her country is that of a turbulent economy, shifting governments and politicians beyond the usual. Sofia grew up in a representative democracy, her mom in a dictatorship, and her grandma under the populist regimes of Perón. The story of Argentina is complex, frustrating, and full of gaping holes where voices should be. And the story we will together tell you is in no way the only one. But at least it's one of them. Where do we start? Rio de la Plata, 1536. After what seems to have been years, they found the delta to the big river, which will lead them to their fortunes. Pedro de Mendoza looks out over the water. He's bet everything he has on this trip. His money, his social standing in the Spanish court back home, and his relationship with his family. Not only did he have to fund this expedition from his own pocket, but the king has also made it clear that this great opportunity only came in exchange for Mendoza's promise of returning to transport 1,000 colonists to the New World once he settled there. But the winds have been good to him and his crew, and they're nearing the head of Rio de Solis and the land of their dreams. Rio de Solis named after a Spanish explorer who was eaten by a local band of indigenous Guaranis in 1516, was what would soon be known as Rio de la Plata, and the city founded by Mendoza in its delta was named after his great experience on the seas. 
Buenos Aires or good winds. Hold on. This was the start of Argentina? Not quite. See, the other story of the beginning of the land that today is Argentina is one that goes much further back in history, to around 11,000 BC, and it's much harder to find in the popular narrative. Argentina at the time of the, by history dubbed, conquest, was home to a plethora of indigenous tribes. Just how many is impossible to say, since they didn't keep written records, and the Europeans thought them unworthy of archival dedication. They were the Mapuche, Gola, Gom, Huichi, Liaita, all with their own cultures, languages, and lifestyles. Mapuche, being the biggest tribe, was in a complicated, on-and-off relationship with the Inca Empire before entering into another, arguably more complicated relationship with the Spanish in the 1500s. For centuries, this extinction of the indigenous and their place in history has long been seen as a natural component to nation-building. Major genocides such as the conquest of the desert in the 1870s, the massacres of Napalpi in 1924 and La Bomba in 1947, wiped out most of Argentina's indigenous population, their cultures, languages, and stories. Who knows what the story of Argentina would have sounded like if what became never had been. Yeah. Yeah, we were never taught anything or took the way, any way to care about any type of thing related to indigenous. It was like, yeah, there was this kind of group of people here, but by the way, this also happened, and then the story gets diluted in the marvelous things that white people would do. What follows is a predominantly white, porteño, or Buenos Aires-centered, middle-class story. Because until the rise of Juan and Eva Perón in the 1940s, this is the perspective Argentine history has taken. The 1494 Treaty of Tordesillas divided the spheres of influence in the New World between the Spanish and the Portuguese crowns, creating the foundation for brutal colonization and exploitations in the coming centuries. The conquistadors and their settlers did not waste any time before getting to work. The Spanish expanded their influence north, west, and south through the founding of major cities like Mendoza and Salta. And with the geographic expansion of the Spanish influence, their influence had ramifications on the social and cultural lives of the original residents. I introduce to you... Toda la ternura de un recuerdo te. The Gaucho, the freeman of the Pampa. Traditionally a skilled horseman of few words, the Gaucho was the national phenomenon stemming from an unholy interaction between the colonizer and the colonized, the son of a white dad and indigenous mom. Noble, brave and generous, he devoted himself to lassoing and racing cattle and horses. The story is that, that his territory was always being, I guess, in danger because of the Indian constant ways to try to destroy or take over his land. So the gaucho was born. Most famously portrayed in El Gaucho Martín Fierro from 1872, the gaucho has become the national hero of Argentina, fighting the obstructive natives as they resisted expanding Spaniard colonization, while at the same time stealing from the rich and giving to the poor for the good of his people. Robin Hood, is that you? 
He offers hope and protection to his people and gives life to the real South American dream of freedom and justice. There were two powers in, in place of the American territory, which was the people basically trying to get resources and, for most part, the Spanish Inquisition. At the beginning of the 17th century, the gauchos, the settlers, and the white man were still a rare sight on the vast plains of Bampa. All this started to change. The Spaniards realized that having an entire continent ruled from Lima, now Peru, was perhaps not the most cost-effective idea. Okay, so Peru was the center of, like, the capital of the South American, I guess, continent. Uh, and everything from everywhere would go there. Every decision, every, every sort of, like, goods, whatever, would happen to come from there to the Pacific Ocean, go all the way to, to Spain. That was a lot. So why bother? Well, deep inside the mountains of Peru existed something so valuable that someone would travel 2,200 kilometers by boat or donkey to get it, as well as name a whole country after it. Silver. In the year 1545, the silver mine in Potosí opened, and the Spanish crown probably peed their pants in excitement. The name Argentina stems from the Latin word argentum, meaning silver, and Rio de la Plata literally means river of silver. Yeah, they were excited. But with increased production achieved largely through the enslavement of native peoples, because God forbid the snobby white conquistadors to lift a finger for their own wealth, came an increased need for transport and more effective governance. Well, it doesn't make sense to go from Potosí to Peru, to Peru, to the Pacific, go all the way to all the world, and then to Spain. So, how to make this more efficient? Divide it into two! Well, they still had to transport long ways, but increased illegal trade through Buenos Aires and increased threat from France and England were two major reasons for Spain to bring out the rulers and draw a line of division on a map where there once had been none. A line was drawn somewhere in the middle of what today is Uruguay and up along the northern border of Bolivia. Oh, the power of the white man. The Virreinato del Rio de la Plata, which was Argentina before the revolution, had like territories that, that are now other countries, which were parts of what now is Chile, parts of Bolivia, Peru, Paraguay, Uruguay, maybe some parts of Brazil, I'm not, I'm not sure. But like that was the territory. Buenos Aires was dubbed the new capital, and the division would prove to be very beneficial for the city. Imports from Spain going to the American colonies passed through the ports of Buenos Aires, and the delta of the River of Silver became a spot of immense wealth. Buenos Aires started becoming this uh, hub. It became the most important city in, in the whole American territory because of the gold mine from Potosí. It was where you get the gold. And so it became super rich, super fast, in like about like 80 years from this division. And then something happened we would always study, like, this used to be Argentina at some point, now it is not anymore. Um, <laughs> and always a narrative on, on, like, Argentina had to shrink down a little bit. 
So what did happen that made the Grand Viceroyalty of Rio de la Plata into the Argentina we know today? See, across the pond in Europe, the invasion of the Iberian Peninsula by the Napoleonic forces in the early 1800s distracted Spain from its imperial obligations. Britain, being shielded from Napoleon on their little island, seized an opportunity they'd been looking forward to for a long time. 10th of August, 1806, Buenos Aires. After 46 days of redcoat occupation, a cry for war can finally be heard. The porteños have been waiting patiently for an opportunity to get rid of the British. The occupation has been hurting their businesses through the introduction of an inconvenient concept the British call free market. They sure don't need a new foreign power dictating their every move. The men prepare for war and the women prepare buckets of boiling oil and piles of bricks on their balconies to throw down at the British. We'll show them. The British Marines weren't used to the vigilant urban guerrilla warfare, and the baffled and scuffed British set sail for home and a not-so-pleased King George III, who hadn't even authorized the mission in the first place. And so people in these two attempts see the power that they had over the territory and the organic power of organization that the people had that was beyond the idea of the viceroyalty. Now, the people of Buenos Aires may have been resolute in their goal to expel the foreign invaders during the last phases of the occupation, but one thing that is seldom mentioned in the Argentine narrative is that even the porteños were not as united as they seemed. Were the English there to liberate them from the Spanish, or were they there to establish British control in the region? The British were thrown out by an outnumbered group of relatively disorganized civilians before the Pretenios could know for sure. In addition to being a great military success in itself, the victory over the British showed the Pretenios two things. One, they could resist a major foreign invasion. And two, they could do it without any support from the motherland. It was time for things to change. Porteños, Buenos Aires people were like, okay, we need to be independent. That was a very Buenos Aires decision. The viceroy had fled the city when Britain invaded, which didn't do wonders for his political support. General Liniers, who, according to many porteños, had led Buenos Aires towards success, became the first populist general in Argentine history. The Spanish did send a new viceroy to keep things in order, the right order, but this didn't last very long. The people of Buenos Aires had tasted the flavors of independence, and most of them liked it. When a British ship arrived at the harbor of Buenos Aires on May 14, 1810, with news of the French invasion of Spain and the failed Spanish government, back in the good old analog days, an open council of all the notables in the city gathered to discuss the future of the viceroyalty. May 22, 1810, Buenos Aires. The arches of the white building are echoing with the sounds of hundreds of upset male voices. Already when they convened earlier this afternoon, it became clear that there were two very distinct opinions on what should be done from here on. Priests, merchants, and nobles stand along the walls exchanging nervous looks as the debate grows fiercer. They shouldn't have come, 
The army might come any time. It's already gone on for hours and the discussions show no signs of reaching a conclusion. The question of the Viceroy's legitimacy after the fall of the British regime was broken down into this essential question. In the absence of the legitimate monarch, should the power return to the people, who then could form a new government? Well, the ones loyal to the Viceroy said no, better stick with what we've got. The ones not so loyal argued for the immediate deposition of the illegitimate imposter. After a week of protests and meetings, a document was signed by the Viceroy declaring him illegitimate as Viceroy, but placed him as a symbolic figurehead of the new Junta, which was to rule the region under the theoretical reign of the King of Spain. Same same, but different, I guess. Everything in high school is thought as like, yeah, you have colonizers, you want to get set free from it, then it makes sense. Okay, next chapter. Um, but there's nowhere written in any Argentine book the narrative of the Porteño. The wealthy intellectuals of a city of 40,000 thus dictated the future for a region consisting almost half of the South American continent. Independence? Check. An Argentine nation? Check. But now what? With a success against the British and their new-gained independence in their pocket, Argentina was standing at a crossroads. Post-independence politics was dominated by the two largest interest groups, the pro-independence party in favor of a constitutional monarchy and the Republican party in favor of a clean break with Spain and a junta-controlled republic led by Spaniards. While there were also some Spanish aristocrats, unsurprisingly enough, in favor of preservation of Spanish rule, but they were easily ignored in the revolutionist storm that swept in over the country. For the next 50 years, the Unionist Porteño regime tried to establish their legitimacy all over Argentina. Unionist Porteños fought federalist rule Cadillos until in 1820 it was clear that the Unionists never stood a chance. What was left from the war was a broken country without order or political stability. Cattle-ranching estancias had been plundered, and boys and men alike from all over the country had been deployed and sent to the war. Somewhere in the middle, Brazil invaded Banda Oriental, what today is Uruguay, and there were countless wars with the horseback-riding indigenous tribes on the Pampa, following the expansion of agriculture to counter the devastating effect of the British-controlled free market. The expansion of the white man's influence over the Pampas created a frontier between the ranchers and the indigenous tribes which had never before been so defined. Remember the conquest of the desert and the massacres of Napalpi and La Bomba? If you see the 100 peso bill, there's like a bunch of horses and men and that's the battle of the desert that culminated in 1888, which is pretty much the successful last attempt to wipe out indigenous populations from the desert, which was not a desert, but it's considered a desert because it was not being used for anything. That's not true. But anything that was useful for Argentinos. This frontier laid the groundwork for the racial hatred and national aspirations that would lead to the near-complete extinction of the indigenous cultures. Now, there's a rather long period of time between the wars of independence in the early 19th century and the introduction of our next chapter, which remains largely ignored in the historiography of Argentina. Why? Perhaps it's too complicated? 
This was a period of rather slow developments, industrialization, democratization, and liberalization. And as we know, we humans are more interested in drama than development. This is a period of prosperity and wealth. After the First World War, Argentinians could travel to Europe and throw money around themselves, since their currency was more or less unaffected by the damages of war. Sofia didn't mention a word of this period. I, too, will skip a lot of this in the interest of the national narrative of the country. Because the next chapter enters with a boom, and has managed to etch its way into the very essence of Argentinianness. It may also be the most controversial and polarizing topic in the country's history. It's spelled Peronism. Well, what I can really say, it's very biased because my, my family is very Peronist. Yeah, this seems to be a general thing in Argentina. No one seems to be unbiased when it comes to Peronism. So what then is Peronism? Well, after almost 70 years of continued liberalist democratic development in the country, the cold winds of Europe made it across a pond in the late 1920s, and they whispered of the end of an era. 1930s saw a coup led by General José Uriburu, which was to set the tone for 50 years of coups and political U-turns. After the second coup of 1943, a confusing three years followed, with three different dictators chasing each other off the throne. Under all this confusion, General Juan Domingo Perrón was biding his time and had built up a powerful secretariat within the National Labor Office. He and his countryside rough-around-the-edges girlfriend Eva Duarte, later Eva Duarte de Perón, or lovingly deified Evita, had been making a reputation for themselves under the duvet of the Labour Party military regime. And in 1946, their time had come. They managed to build up a personality cult unlike any other, extending over national borders as well as the very border between life and death. His policies are difficult to define and changed quite a bit between his two terms in office. Perón's first two terms in office were called by the nationalization of industry, the strengthening of trade unions and the widening of rights and sense of belonging from a previously divided country. But one would not do Peronism justice if one stopped there. His first term focused on the unity of doctrine, which was to invoke collective feelings for the nation. In a speech to Congress in 1944, he proclaimed that the doctrine is the collective sense and feeling which must be inculcated in the people, and through which it's possible to arrive at the unity of action in achievements and solutions. This doctrine was not to be taught, it was to be preached. And preach they did. Para vencerlo, solamente necesitamos una Argentina unida. His, his speeches were amazing, dude. He was, he was like the Martin Luther King of Argentina. People would like, you hear his things when he speaks and you cry. I would say he was a preacher for the working class. His presence taught people how to fight for what they believed, what, they, what people dreamed. The strange thing is, the Perrons managed to gain unwavering support from social groups ranging from the army to labor unions, 
and from factory workers to the social elite. Perron's beloved wife, Evita, had died at 33 just one month after the inauguration of Perón for his second term in office, and the piety of her legacy by Peronist loyalists, if anything, grew the support for Perón during his exile. She became a sort of Argentinian Madonna, Saint Evita. She remains to this day a powerful political symbol for the Peronist movement and a unifying factor for what Peronism means to people, regardless of who is speaking. And Peronism remains a highly relevant factor in Argentine culture and politics today. In fact, current president Mauricio Macri is said to be the first non-Peronist democratically elected president to have finished a full term since Perón came to office in 1946. But what is Peronism? What is Peronism? I don't know. Uh, I don't think nobody knows. I think it's just... It's the desire that Peronism is something to you because it was something to your parents, it was something to your grandparents, and you just keep hoping that it's going to be something to you. Argentine political theorist Pierre Ostegui says it really well. Peronism has gone through successive ideological metamorphoses, characterized as fascism, as laborism, as corporatism, as revolutionary socialism, national populism arguably union-based Christian democracy, and now neoliberalism. The list is not exhaustive, nor strictly chronological, and several overlaps occurred. Two different coups pushed Peron aside. One in 1955, and the last one after his death in 1976. His Justicialist Party was banned from elections and supporters imprisoned and tortured. Argentinians on both ends of the political spectra will testify on the national trauma this government brought. But it's also important to remember that the coup of 1976 was supported by large parts of the population since it promised to get rid of the corroding corruption and get Argentina back on track. It's also important to remember that the coup is widely argued to have been part of the American-backed Operation Condor, which aimed to rid Latin America from communism, under the wider umbrella of the Cold War. Susana Kaiser, an oral historian, interviewed young people from Sofia's generation on what they knew about what has been called the Dirty War. Words that she and her interviewees used to describe the legacy of the regime are fear, denial, justice, silences, and impunity. The regime targeted independent thought, socialist ideologies, and anything that would threaten the oligarchical social structure. You couldn't meet with your family. You couldn't go to your family's houses to have a dinner because it was prohibited by law that more than two people would unite at any possibility if any realm, because that was considered a political um, meeting. Although much is unknown, what can be said for sure is that thousands of young people were abducted from their homes, never to be seen again, that truly horrific torture methods were used during seemingly arbitrary interrogations and that the violence left deep scars in the minds of generations to come. Very extreme things were taught in the TV because you had to know why you don't want this, why this shouldn't happen again. And it hasn't, at least not yet. 
The Dirty War ended in 1983, and since then, Argentina has been enjoying democracy. Unstable, yes, but a democracy nonetheless. The 80s and 90s saw increasing economic problems until 1991's catastrophe. Inflation of the peso went from 13% in 1970 to 3,100% in 1991. Yep, you heard me, 3,100%. Money was worth nothing. An economic restoration plan was introduced and the peso was pegged to the dollar. Things seemed to be working out well until one fatal day ten years later. 19th of December, 2001, Buenos Aires. Following a decree of siege from President de la Rua and weeks of staff cuttings and inflation following the IMF austerity measures imposed on the country, the sounds of thousands of pots and pans slammed against each other paralyzes the nation. The revolution of the nobodies has no mercy. On the night between the 19th and the 20th of December, the first gunshots are heard and the police move in, escalating what has already become a violent demonstration utter desperation from the people. The last 10 days of 2001 saw not only one change of precedent, but four. People didn't know who was in power for the day. One precedent lasted an impressive amount of six hours before stepping down. After New Year's, things started calming down. But with the devaluation of the peso, Argentina was set on a course of inflation and soaring unemployment. Although the following years looked promising, the 2008 global crisis put Argentina in an awkward position again, where the government could no longer borrow money as easily and the export economy stagnated due to a reduced global trade. Between 2003 and 2015, Nestor and Cristina Kirchner focused their efforts on fiscal policy and government spending in order to expand the suffering economy. Debt was brought down, legitimacy and power was restored to the president, and money was invested in social programs and education. However, there were some serious flaws in the measures introduced by the Kirchners. Flight of capital in a foreignized economy was curbed through controlled exchange rate in true Peronist conservationist spirit, which halted the economy. Though current President Macri has been introducing policies to stimulate the economy again, the overspending and debt led the central bank to start printing more money, setting Argentina off to another round of surging inflation, and only in 2018, the peso lost half its value. The Argentinian people are again screaming for change. From encompassing most of the South American continent to the viceroyalty of Rio de la Plata to finally Argentina as we know it today, Argentina has shrunk quite a bit in mind and body. Even though the prosperity of the late 1900s is not being used as a nationalist method of remembrance, the aspect of looking back to what was can be seen in the current reemergence of Peronism and the self-determination of the 1940s. The country's volatile past has definitely shaped the way Argentinians think of their future. But the most pressing issue today is, according to Sofia as well as many others, the perpetual economic crisis the country has been in on and off since the 1970s. People are noticing how they just had to 
cut short their, their lifestyles. Um, people telling me that on the last two weeks of the month they just have to eat rice because there's nothing else. You, know? you just don't know if next, like tomorrow, your university is going to open. You can't go because your uh, professors haven't been paid for like the last eight months. And then you get fired out of your job because the coffee shop that you were working doesn't need that much stuff because not a lot of people are coming because taking a like people start avoiding those little things you lose your job you can't pay your rent you move back to your parents you go back to like old habits of control that your parents might have over you expectations things that you can can't do and little things like very just very detailed things that get in your it's like a leak. You have a wall and there's this crack and then the, if you put water with pressure it starts opening little cracks that you didn't know they were there and the water starts coming in and that's, that's the crisis. The crisis is not just your money, it's everything. A huge thank you to Sofia for being so open with me and to Kroner, Barbara and Onda for tirelessly editing my scripts. Next up on Collecting Histories, we'll meet Sohit, a Punjabi from the multi-ethnic city, Delhi. We'll follow him on a journey on defining what it means to be Indian and part of the Indian nation. We're all united, even though we're people from more than a thousand ethnicities and more than 600 languages. We just live together at the end of the day. I mean, it causes a lot of problems. Things are slow just because everybody disagrees with everyone. But there's an agreement to disagreement. There's a lot of songs about how different ethnicities are working together. I mean, especially if you live and listen to them, they're all very much focusing on the idea of walking together, even though we're so different and so far apart in colors and ethnicities and everything, literally. 